Welcome. This is the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Dr. Lisa Johnson. This week, April 25, 2019, we feature articles on pembrolizumab for PML, HCV-positive organ donors, a centrifugal flow or axial flow left ventricular assist device, tegraxofusp in blastic plasmacytoid dendritic cell neoplasm, and stomaching drug delivery a review article on hazardous chemical emergencies and poisonings, a case report of a man with alcohol withdrawal and altered mental status, and prospective articles on the hypertension hot potato, on creating a center for innovation within the VA, and on the ROC curve redefined. Pembrolizumab Treatment for Progressive Multifocal Leukoencephalopathy by Irene Cortese from the National Institutes of Health, Bethesda, Maryland. Progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, PML, is an opportunistic brain infection that is caused by the JC virus and is typically fatal unless immune function can be restored. Whether PD-1 blockade with pembrolizumab could reinvigorate anti-JC virus immune activity in patients with PML was unknown. In this study, pembrolizumab was administered every four to six weeks to eight adults with PML, each with a different underlying predisposing condition. Pembrolizumab induced downregulation of PD-1 expression on lymphocytes in peripheral blood and in cerebrospinal fluid, CSF, in all eight patients. Five patients had clinical improvement or stabilization of PML, accompanied by a reduction in the JC viral load in the CSF and an increase in in vitro CD4 and CD8 anti-JC virus activity. In the other three patients, no meaningful change was observed in the viral load or in the magnitude of antiviral cellular immune response, and there was no clinical improvement. These findings are consistent with the hypothesis that in some patients with PML, pembrolizumab reduces JC viral load and increases CD4 and CD8 activity against the JC virus. Clinical improvement or stabilization occurred in five of the eight patients who received pembrolizumab. Further study of immune checkpoint inhibitors in the treatment of PML is warranted. Igor Koralnik from Rush University Medical Center, Chicago, writes in an editorial that the findings from MRI in these case reports deserve consideration, since a decrease in the size of the lesions was interpreted as treatment efficacy. However, in some cases, the PML lesions were replaced with atrophy, a finding consistent with destruction of white matter by PML, rather than with elimination of the lesions. Furthermore, the absence of contrast enhancement on MRI suggests that the immune checkpoint blockers may not have been potent enough to trigger the immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome, IRIS. This may be partly a result of the timing of administration in the course of PML. 
Enthusiasm with respect to PD-1 blockade is also tempered by a report of PML that occurred after one year of nivolumab treatment administered every two weeks for Hodgkin's lymphoma, as well as four unpublished cases of PML related to nivolumab that were reported in pharmacovigilance databases. The cost and safety profile of these medications might also be considered before adoption, since immune-related adverse events may affect multiple organ systems. Do pembrolizumab and nivolumab fit the bill for treatment of PML? The current reports are encouraging, but suggest that the presence of JC virus-specific T cells in the blood is a prerequisite for their use. A control trial may be needed to determine whether immune checkpoint inhibitors are indeed able to keep JC virus in check in patients with PML. Heart and lung transplants from HCV-infected donors to uninfected recipients by Anne Woolley from Brigham and Women's Hospital, Boston. This trial involved the transplantation of hearts and lungs from donors who had hepatitis C viremia, irrespective of HCV genotype, to 44 adults without HCV infection. Sofosbuvir valpatosphere, a pan-genotypic antiviral regimen, was preemptively administered to the organ recipients to block viral replication. 36 patients received lung transplants and 8 received heart transplants. 95% of recipients had a detectable hepatitis C viral load immediately after transplantation, with a median of 1,800 international units per milliliter. Of the first 35 patients enrolled who had completed six months of follow-up, All were alive and had excellent graft function and an undetectable hepatitis C viral load at six months after transplantation. The viral load became undetectable by approximately two weeks after transplantation, and it subsequently remained undetectable in all patients. No treatment-related serious adverse events were identified. More cases of acute cellular rejection for which treatment was indicated occurred in the HCV-infected lung transplant recipients than in a cohort of patients who received lung transplants from donors who did not have HCV infection. This difference was not significant after adjustment for possible confounders. In patients without HCV infection who received a heart or lung transplant from donors with hepatitis C viremia, treatment with an antiviral regimen for four weeks, initiated within a few hours after transplantation, prevented the establishment of HCV infection. In an editorial, Emily Bloomberg from the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, writes that organs that are suitable for donation to the more than 113,000 persons who are waiting for transplants in the United States are in short supply. In 2018, only 36,500 persons received transplants. Substantial efforts have been made to find new approaches to expand the pool of donor organs that were previously considered to be unacceptable. 
This expansion includes the use of organs obtained from donors with hepatitis C virus infection in candidates for transplantation who do not have HCV infection. Are the results of this trial sufficient to encourage more widespread use of HCV mismatched transplantation? The early results are very encouraging, but there is still a lot to learn. Data regarding long-term outcomes are limited. It is unknown whether an increase in the incidence of cardiovascular disease, which was previously reported in recipients of organs from HCV-positive donors, will be a late complication. Patient consent assumes a level of understanding about HCV infection that may not currently exist. Furthermore, it is imperative that transplantation centers determine how antiviral agents will be provided in advance of acceptance of organs from HCV-positive donors. Approximately 2.4 million persons in the United States have HCV infection, with the highest incidence among injection drug users, and organs obtained from these persons account for nearly a third of donor organs in many areas of the country. The time has come to consider expanding the use of HCV mismatched transplantation under controlled conditions. A fully magnetically levitated left ventricular assist device. Final report by Mandeep Mera from Brigham and Women's Hospital Heart and Vascular Center, Boston. In this final analysis, which included 1,028 patients with advanced heart failure, patients were randomly assigned to receive a fully magnetically levitated centrifugal flow or a mechanical bearing axial flow left ventricular assist device. In the analysis of the primary endpoint, 76.9% of patients in the centrifugal flow pump group, as compared with 64.8% in the axial flow pump group, remained alive and free of disabling stroke or reoperation to replace or remove a malfunctioning device at two years. Pump replacement was less common in the centrifugal flow pump group than in the axial flow pump group, 2.3% of patients versus 11.3%. The numbers of events per patient year for stroke of any severity, major bleeding, and gastrointestinal hemorrhage were lower in the centrifugal flow pump group. Among patients with advanced heart failure, a fully magnetically levitated centrifugal flow left ventricular assist device was associated with less frequent need for pump replacement than an axial flow device and was superior with respect to survival free of disabling stroke or reoperation to replace or remove a malfunctioning device. The Graxofusp in Blastic Plasmacytoid Dendritic Cell Neoplasm by Naveen Pemaraju from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, Houston. Blastic Plasmacytoid Dendritic Cell Neoplasm, BPDCN, is an aggressive hematologic cancer that is caused by transformed plasmacytoid dendritic cells that overexpress interleukin-3 receptor subunit alpha. Tegraxofusp is a CD123-directed cytotoxin consisting of human interleukin-3 
infused to truncated diphtheria toxin. In this open-label study, 47 adult patients with untreated or relapsed BPDCN were assigned to receive an intravenous infusion of tagraxofusp on days 1 to 5 of each 21-day cycle. Treatment continued until disease progression or unacceptable toxic effects. Of the 47 patients, 32 were receiving tagraxofusp as first-line treatment, and 15 had received previous treatment. Among the 29 previously untreated patients who received tagraxofusp at a dose of 12 micrograms per kilogram, the primary outcome of complete response and clinical complete response occurred in 72%, and the overall response rate was 90%. Of these patients, 45% went on to undergo stem cell transplantation. Survival rates at 18 and 24 months were 59% and 52%, respectively. Among the 15 previously treated patients, the response rate was 67%, and the median overall survival was 8.5 months. Serious adverse events included capillary leak syndrome. Hepatic dysfunction and thrombocytopenia were common. In adult patients with untreated or relapsed BPDCN, the use of tagraxofusp led to clinical responses. Hazardous Chemical Emergencies and Poisonings A review article by Fred Henredig from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Hazardous chemical emergencies and related poisonings result from various exposures, including inadvertent residential, industrial, occupational, or transportation mishaps, natural disasters, and hazardous substance releases that are intended to cause harm. Up to 100,000 industrial chemicals are used each day in the United States, and federal authorities estimate that more than 10,000 potentially consequential releases of hazardous substances occur annually. In addition, numerous compounds have been developed primarily as military weapons with exceedingly high toxicity. Both toxic industrial chemicals and military chemical weapons are capable of causing mass casualties in a substantive release and may be deployed intentionally in the context of chemical terrorism, targeted assassination attempts, or wartime attacks on civilian populations, as tragically shown in the current Syrian war. These authors review the toxicology and hospital-based management of acute poisonings caused principally by dermal and inhalational exposure to several representative chemical agent classes in incidents involving the release of hazardous substances or chemical attacks. Cyanide and organophosphate poisonings are emphasized, since they can also affect individual patients in the more familiar contexts of occupational and residential exposures or ingestions with suicidal intent, and since specific emergency antidotal therapy is crucial for good outcomes. A 54-year-old man with alcohol withdrawal and altered mental status. A case record of the Massachusetts General Hospital by Andrew Fenvis and colleagues. A 
a 54-year-old man with a history of alcohol use disorder, was admitted to the hospital with concerns about alcohol withdrawal symptoms. He had recent binges in which he consumed large amounts of vodka. The patient reported diffuse headache, nausea, non-bloody and non-bilious emesis, restlessness, auditory hallucinations, and a sensation of insects crawling on the skin. On examination, the patient had hypertension, tachypnea, tachycardia, and tongue fasciculations, and he was flushed. His blood alcohol level was 136 milligrams per deciliter, even though he had stopped drinking 10 hours earlier. Laboratory evaluation was notable for anion gap metabolic acidosis. Phenobarbital was administered at a gradually tapering dose for management of alcohol withdrawal. The patient reported ongoing alcohol cravings, for which topiramate was recommended. He awaited transfer to an alcohol detoxification facility. On the fifth hospital day, after resolution of withdrawal symptoms, he was found to be delirious, lethargic, and minimally responsive. His urine was positive for ketones. The physician's approach to the presence of anion gap metabolic acidosis was to consider five categories of clinical disorders, one of which was drug or toxin ingestion. Although there is a long list of substances that could cause the patient's condition, they needed to consider only the ones that he could have accessed while he was in the hospital. Stomaching Drug Delivery a Clinical Implications of Basic Research article by David Braden from the University College, Dublin. Oral ingestion remains the preferred method of drug administration, but the gastric mucosa represents a formidable barrier to oral drug delivery. Oral delivery of therapeutic peptides, proteins, antibodies, and genetic medicines has been one of the most sought-after goals of the pharmaceutical industry for decades. There have been few successes. The authors of a recent study described a prototype gastric device dubbed a self-orienting millimeter-scale applicator, SOMA, which is designed to orient at the stomach wall at which point an actuated needle-like attachment called a millipost incorporating the therapeutic entity penetrates and deposits the payload, that is, the millipost, across the mucosa for systemic distribution. The investigators drew inspiration from the shape of the shell of a self-riding tortoise. Once the soma is opposed to the stomach wall, having arrived at it by force of gravity or gastric pressure, actuation occurs by means of a fluid-induced dissolution process that deploys a spring, forcing the millipost to pierce the gastric mucosa, yet avoiding perforation of the underlying smooth muscle. The investigators tested the device in three fasting pigs using human insulin as a model active pharmaceutical agent. Hypertension Hot Potato Anatomy of the Angiotensin Receptor Blocker Recalls A Perspective Article by J. Brian Bird from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Angiotensin receptor blockers, ARBs, are one of four drug classes recommended for the initial treatment of hypertension. 
These medications are commonly used not only for hypertension, a condition present in 45.6% of U.S. adults, but also for heart failure and chronic kidney disease. On January 25th, Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Scott Gottlieb and Director of the FDA Center for Drug Evaluation and Research Janet Woodcock released a statement updating the public on large-scale voluntary recalls of various products containing ARBs. Two probable carcinogens had been identified in active pharmaceutical ingredients used by some manufacturers of Valsartan, Herbisartan, and Losartan. The impurities arose during manufacture of the ingredients in two factories located in China and India. The same day, the Wall Street Journal reported that as many as 2 million patients had probably been exposed to the impurities, N-nitrosodimethylamine, NDMA, and N-nitrosodimethylamine, NDEA. Most recently, a third impurity, N-nitroso-N-methyl-4-aminobutyric acid, NMBA, has been identified in an ARB product, resulting in a new recall. These recalls are of growing concern, and they highlight several issues related to the readiness of our health systems to respond to drug recalls, trust between patients and providers, uncertain drug dose equivalences, and the regulation of drug manufacturing in the global marketplace. The VA Mission Act, Creating a Center for Innovation Within the VA, a perspective article by Ashok Reddy from the VA Puget Sound Healthcare System, Seattle. Last June, the VA, Maintaining Internal Systems and Strengthening Integrated Outside Networks, Mission Act, was signed into law with the goal of improving care for the more than 9 million veterans served by the Department of Veterans Affairs Healthcare System. The bill dedicates $50 million per year to a VA Center for Innovation for Care and Payment that will develop innovative approaches to testing payment and service delivery models in order to reduce expenditures while preserving or enhancing the quality of care provided by the VA. While there are important similarities between this charge and the one established for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, the VA and traditional Medicare operate in ways that result in fundamentally different incentives for providers. These authors believe that there are three important distinctions for leaders of the VA to consider when designing payment and care delivery models. First, the VA Center could design incentives within new models to protect against under-provision rather than over-provision of care. Second, the VA Center could address incentives in capitation payment structures by prioritizing models that focus on specific episodes of care. Third, As it explores episode-based payment, the VA Center could identify conditions that are common among veterans and prioritize them in early pilot programs. The ROC Curve Redefined Optimizing Sensitivity and Specificity to the Lived Reality of Cancer A Perspective Article by Susan Walker from the University of Melbourne, Australia 
Dr. Walker has always had a peculiar fascination for the receiver operating characteristic curve. As a researcher, she appreciates that the area under the curve can be precisely mapped so that different screening or diagnostic tests can be meaningfully compared. As a clinician, she values the ability to slide the inflection point. By choosing to prioritize sensitivity, we reduce the risk of missing an important diagnosis. By prioritizing specificity, we reduce the false positive rate for situations in which the price of intervention, whether for diagnosis or management, might simply be too high. This lovely interweaving of her clinical and academic perspectives took an unexpected turn just over a year ago when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Like many patients, Dr. Walker found herself on the dizzying merry-go-round of staging and treatment as they drew weapons against this disease that threatened her life. She had children to see through school, patients to care for, clinical and academic careers to nurture. But Dr. Walker hadn't reckoned on the price of treatment, the complications, the treatment of complications, the side effects of the treatment of complications. They combined forces to become her lived reality of cancer. For her, grasping this entity, defining its boundaries, seemed key to disempowering it. So she nailed it to a curve. The welcome news is this. The area under the curve can be manipulated. Our Images in Clinical Medicine features a 60-year-old woman who presented to the ophthalmology clinic after noticing central blind spots in the visual fields of both eyes. She had a history of rheumatoid arthritis, which had been treated with hydroxychloroquine at a dose of 400 milligrams daily for 14 years. The visual acuity was 20-20 in both eyes. The retinal examination showed a bullseye pattern of hypopigmentation in both eyes. Visual field testing showed ring scotomas, and retinal imaging on optical coherence tomography showed corresponding loss of photoreceptors and retinal pigment epithelium, findings that are consistent with hydroxychloroquine toxicity. Hydroxychloroquine was switched to methotrexate, and six months later, the patient's ocular condition remained stable. A 57-year-old woman presented for her annual ophthalmic evaluation. Her medical history was remarkable for diagnoses of systemic lupus erythematosus and Sjogren's syndrome. She had been taking 400 milligrams of hydroxychloroquine daily for eight years. Her ophthalmic history included a baseline visual acuity of 20-20 in each eye normal color vision, and normal findings on automated visual field testing. At year 8 of therapy, she reported no visual symptoms. Testing indicated that her color vision had diminished from baseline in both eyes. Standard achromatic perimetry revealed paracentral scotomas in each eye and macular spectral domain optical coherence tomography revealed a loss of the retinal inner and outer segments, findings consistent with hydroxychloroquine retinal toxicity. The results of slit lamp and fundoscopic examinations were normal.
Long-term therapy with hydroxychloroquine is commonly used in the treatment of autoimmune diseases. Routine eye examination with appropriate ancillary testing should be considered for patients receiving long-term hydroxychloroquine therapy. In this case, the hydroxychloroquine treatment was stopped, and treatment with methotrexate was initiated by her rheumatologist. This concludes our summary. Let us know what you think about our audio summaries. Any comments or suggestions may be sent to audio at nejm.org. Thank you for listening.